Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more dynamic divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. This is entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this week's episode on Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. And by God, Aaron, we finally got the timing right. Um, the I, spies I, helped. The, paying the, <laughs> the spies really did help us on this one. I don't know where we got it in the budget, but uh, kudos on you, Jim. That was mostly baked goods. You'd be amazing. Oh, just a little bag of cookies will get you a long way. That's, that's a neighborly uh, in the North. Northeast out there, isn't it? Snickerdoodles. I oh. swear to God. All right. You know, you can, you can get damn near anything out of somebody with a warm <laughs> plate of snickerdoodles. Okay. And in this case, what we got, in fact, literally five minutes before Aaron and I are going to record, Mr. Adams reaches out and, hey, have you seen the She-Hulk trailer? And I had not. And, and as I'm watching that, Nancy kind of chimes in from the couch and goes, hey, there's a story in Variety about Kevin Feige at the upfronts and what he was talking about. So, My goodness, our news is like hotcakes, just fresh off the griddle today. Snickerdoodles, snickerdoodles. Oh, snickerdoodles, sorry. <laughs> there we go. Okay, lots and lots of, of news this week. A surprising amount of lady-related news. We, we got our first look at Tessa Thompson and Natalie Portman in their Valkyrie, their new Valkyrie and Lady Thor outfits for uh, Love and Thunder. Does that look like a judge and jury stand? Not a jury stand, but like like uh, Natalie Portman's on the witness defense stand or something? And It's and a pretty, you know, It looks yeah. formal. It does, it does. And it, what intrigues me is if you remember the initial Thor Love and Thunder trailer, mm -hmm. uh, Tessa Thompson was, was in a suit, you know. Yeah, in, but that was a business meeting, not formal Asgardian meetings. It's different when you're dealing with, you know, currency, you got to wear the suit. But when you're ruling over, uh, you know, godlike lands, you got to wear the armor. Okay. Uh, likewise, we not only got to see the She-Hulk trailer, but, but we have a launch date for the show, right? Uh, I want to say August 17th. Does that sound right? I honestly didn't even pay attention to the date. I was so mesmerized by the music and the color and, and uh, what they were putting up on the screen that a date didn't even occur to me as a thing to look okay. for. Okay, well, well, we'll talk more about that on the second half of today's show. Plus share what we've also learned about the Echo limited series that Marvel Studios has in, in the works. And just last night, Aaron got to attend a talk given by one of the real giants when it comes to comic books, graphic novels, and the like. And But again, we'll save that for the second half of today's show. Uh, first, the news. And as always, the news portion of this week's Marvelous Disney is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Before we get started here, we had a listener reach out via Twitter about last week's show, Aaron. Uh-oh. Did we step in it? Uh, a little bit, just we, a toe. We overlooked something. Oh, uh, Mr. okay. Mr. Chad, MD, seemed to enjoy the episode, but he then went on to say, one thing I wish you two had, would have addressed here is that post credit scene in from Doctor Strange uh, 1, 
where 616 version of Baron Mordo, right. uh, you know, again, <clears throat> oh, again. He's set up to be the bad guy and we never address it in uh, the sequel, right? That's it, exactly. Because think about it. You know, I think Marvel has done this a few times where they'll give us a lead on a thing and that plot line does not get picked up. And I think it was just somebody can't, you know, Spider-Man came along and we had Tom Holland and Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield and everyone went, oh, we can't just go with a plain old movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that sometimes due to the reaction of a thing that came before it, plans change and they go, ooh, this is our new compass pointing to a different true north. And uh, plans change, yeah, I think. Well, according to heavy spoilers, which you can go over and watch on YouTube, Multiverse of Madness actually started off with an entirely different opening scene where the Baron Mordo from Earth-616 went to meet with Wanda Maximoff, with his goal being that he was going to recruit her help in taking Doctor Strange out. See, the thing is, if that was Mordo's plan, well, things did not go according to plan, Aaron. Well, there's, I mean, that, there's a lot of other changes, because if that were the case, that if, that, if that's the opening scene, mm-hmm. the reveal with uh, where she gives too much information to Doctor Strange would have landed differently. It would have had no impact. In that moment, because we would have been ahead of the game there. See, you've nailed it. The, the whole purpose of that scene is to learn that the Scarlet Witch is already in the sway of the Darkhold and to demonstrate how ruthless she's become now in her quest to get reunited with, with sons Billy and Tommy. She quickly, evidently beheaded Baron Mordo and absorbed all of his magical ability. And scene was shot. Preliminary effects work was done, supposedly. And then Kevin Feige had Multiverse of Madness test screened. And exactly what you said, based on audience reactions, this was the wrong way to start the Doctor Strange sequel. Evidently, by having Wanda do this in literally like the first two or three minutes of the movie, made her character irredeemable. The notes at the end of the screening, you know, uh, you know, just were like, this isn't what we're looking for with the Scarlet Witch. We do want to kind of leave the door open uh, to maybe Well, you got to have sympathy. And if she starts off just murdering people, you, you don't start with sympathy with that character. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Okay. There was another story that bubbled up this week that made me wonder when Kevin Feige was at this test screening, whether or not he was sitting forward or leaning back. Because Joe Russo, in an interview with Empire Magazine, when asked what it was like to work with Kevin Feige, uh, especially as you entered the editing phase of a Marvel Studios movie. And here's the quote. Kevin's sensibility when it comes to commercial material is incredible. Anthony, uh, that's Joe's brother and creative partner, Anthony Russo. Anthony and I learned early on that when you do a screening with Kevin, he would sit and watch the director's cut with you. And if you look over at him and he's leaning forward, that means the movie's going to work. And if he's leaning backwards, just from a test audience standpoint, he can sense exactly where the movie isn't going to connect with the audience. And and it's innate. It's inside of him because he, he loves storytelling so much. And and that's always a great litmus test for us because we're always kind of side-eyeing Kevin just to see whether he's leaning backward or forwards as he's watching the movie. And you have to understand that the, the, the Russos have been working with Kevin Feige for as far back as, as Captain America Winter Soldier. That's April of 2014. And Joe talked about how cool it was to, after Winter Soldier, after Kevin learned he could actually trust uh, Joe and Anthony's storytelling instinct, to be led off the leash 
by the head of Marvel Studios and mm -hmm. goes on to say, Kevin is a great collaborator and very trusting. If you win his trust, you can do whatever you want. He'll support you. He'll support your crazy ideas. He'll support you taking his two lead characters and then having them try to kill each other. He'll support you killing off half of his characters. He'll even support you killing Iron Man. So we had a fantastic time working with Kevin because he gave us a, a, a great level of control to sell, tell the sort of Marvel stories that we wanted to tell. And now, mind you, they earned that. Winter Soldier made $714 million. Uh, Civil War, $1.1 billion. Infinity Wars, $2 billion. And Endgame, $2.79 billion. That's $6.7 billion worth of trust right there. And now, given that Multiverse of Madness has only earned to date $703 million uh, worldwide. Uh, and mind you, that's only 11 days after it's been in theaters. I'm kind of hoping Sam Raimi gets into the Kevin Feige Trust Your Storytelling Club. No, uh, no. Uh, Sam Raimi has no experience in movie making. I don't know why we should trust this guy now. He's a, he's a hack, an amateur, a one-timer. <laughs> I, I do want to point out that literally 20 years ago this month, the original Spider-Man arrived in theaters. Uh, that made $825 million to Worldwide Box Office. Spider-Man 2 arrives uh, in 2004, makes $788 million. And then Spider-Man 3, which I had always thought hadn't done all that well at the box office. That's why they wouldn't allow Sam to go forward with 4. But it actually made... $894 million. Uh, it, it did better than the original. Uh, yeah, but it was, the, it was the fan lashback because, remember, we had internet power at that time. We did. And uh, the, the studios could hear us simper and whine and complain from all across the world. And uh, it was mostly about the Venom thing. And Sam didn't want to do the Venom, and, and they did. And then for four, he wanted to do the Vulture. And they are like, you're ridiculous. Vulture's the dumbest character in the history of the planet. <laughs> but we're going to relaunch. We, who, let's do the Vulture. What do you think? Sounds yeah. cool. I, I don't know where I heard it from, but I heard I, once that it was cool. Let's that's that's, that's an <laughs> excellent insight. Uh, by the way, our collective box office for the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies was $2.5 Adjusted for inflation, that's three point eight in 2022 dollars. Sam Raimi was billed in MCU before it was even a glimmer in its daddy's eye. Yeah, I think uh, Feige should just have the door held open for Mr. Raimi to I do, uh, you know, like walk around, pick something out. What do you like? What do you like? You've got a lot of characters there. Find one you like. Get cozy with it. Let's tell a story and uh, get back to me. More to the point, if you think about it, if you think about the Russo brothers or if you think about Sam Raimi, it takes a certain amount of skill to deliver of a movie that can perform at, at this kind of level at the worldwide box office, especially when you're shooting in the middle of a pandemic. Mm. Now, we're about to do a spoiler here for folks who haven't seen Multiverse of Madness. Do you have your klaxon ready? I do, actually. Uh, well, let me sound it off. Okay. All right. We're, we're oh. clear. Okay, so uh, we're now going to talk about the scene in Multiverse of Madness where Wanda has breached the Illuminati compound and then lays waste to John Krasinski's uh, Reed Richards, Mrs. Fantastic. Oh, Patrick uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. I've been looking online for, you know how there's veggie spaghetti? It's like green or whatever. I've been looking for blue spaghetti. 
I don't know why th- I had to bring this up at this particular moment. It felt urgent that I mention it right now, but if anyone can help me find blue spaghetti. Anyway, continue, Jim. I don't know why I had to interrupt. I, you know, it, it's just, it's so interesting you say that because just today they have started running the ads for the Kellogg cereal tie-ins to the new Pixar movie, Lightyear. Mm-hmm. And so you can, if you get a box of Frosted Flakes or if you get a box of Fruit Loops, they have glow-in-the-dark stickers inside of each of those boxes. And again, and, and the, the classic tradition is uh, collect both of them. You're, you're correct. I think a retail tie-in opportunity was lost here. And why someone at Prince Spaghetti didn't right. do the, you know, uh, the Fantastic Four tie-in? I gotta, I gotta jump in there on the Buzz Lightyear thing. You know, the cat yep. thing that they've got in the trailer yes. there mm-hmm. uh, for the cereal. Yep. And I'm just spitballing here, but you know, uh, guys oh. in the in the promotions and PR department, hear me oh. out. I'm not gonna like this, am I? <laughs> not at all. <laughs> okay. Uh, think of uh, was it grape nuts that kind of <sighs> thing uh, with with maybe little well, chocolate chips in there for the kid and, and call it kitty litter mm, and then yeah. use that that cat as the the mascot and uh, Buzz Lightyear kitty litter. Okay, trying to redeem this moment in the show, I am now pressing <sighs> the foot of my socks. The cat plush and all right, here we go. Hang on, hang on, make a noise. I am socks, your personal companion robot. That's the, we, that's from the uh, movie there? That's from the movie For there. It says 20 different things. Hang on. Let's see what else we say. What? Oh, well, we'll take that. What? Okay. Why are Moving. you eating out of my litter box? Okay, there we go. go. I, uh, thanks for the visual. <laughs> okay. So, again, we, we have the scene where Wanda lays waste to the Illuminati. So, in an interview at Vanity Fair, Elizabeth gets asked about, well, what was it like to work with John Krasinski? And her reply is... Never met him. Yep. I've met his wife, but I've never met John. I've also never met Haley or Sir Patrick or Anson or uh, Lashana. I'm you know. sure the entire Illuminati has not met each other. They're all probably filmed as individual elements on separate days at separate locations. You're not wrong. In fact, as, as Elizabeth goes on to say, we shot, we all shot that scene separately. Mm-hmm. And then in post, they stitch it all together. Movie magic. Yep. Which now means I have to go back and watch Multiverse of Madness and, and see if there are any tells that do, you know, suggest that the, the actors weren't actually together when they shot that. But speaking of Anson Mount, the, the gentleman who played Black Bolt, you and I both were not fans of Inhumans when it had its eight episode run on ABC back in the fall of 2017. And I got to figure, given the reviews, given the fan reaction, Anson probably figured that he'd never get the chance to play Black Bolt again. But as uh, Mr. Mount tweeted out earlier this week, I'm finally able to discuss this without providing too many spoilers. But getting the call from Kevin Feige was one of the most unexpected of my life. It was an honor and a joy to finally work with Sam Raimi, who reached out to engage me on how best to do this. Beyond grateful for the whole experience. And there's possibly another reason that Anson Mount got invited back to play Black Bolt in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And that's because when Marvel Television was shooting The Inhumans in Hawaii from March to June of of 2017, there were all these stories coming off of the set of that limited series about what a complete pro Anson was, how he would be the first one on set each day and how 
I've always had time when they were shooting on location around Honolulu to engage with the locals. Um, he, you know, he was always happy to, to pose for selfies, sign autographs, and for, in short, Mount was this great ambassador for this very short-lived show, and evidently Kevin Feige remembered that. There's kind of a, a reason that you'll see Marvel circling back on certain performers. Elizabeth Olsen uh, talked about watching Scarlett Johansson on the set of Avengers Age of Ultron and, and how she handled herself. In a recent interview, Elizabeth talked about, I, I remember being on Ultron and seeing how Scarlett was with the crew. I was just amazed at her ease and her comfort and how she included the crew in everything and how she made makes everyone part of the team and feel excited to come to work. And I've really taken that into my life ever since then. I bring this up because the topic of Martin Scorsese came up. And I remember, Martin is the one who insists that the, what the movies that Marvel Studios makes aren't cinema, that there's no art to them. They're, they're, they're commerce. They're, you know, they're good comic book movies. They're theme right. park attractions. And again, Elizabeth went on to say, from an actor's point of view, look, I get it. I totally understand that there's a different kind of performance that's happening here. But I do think throwing Marvel under the bus takes away from the hundreds of very talented crew people. That's why I get a little feisty about that. I, I'm not saying we're making indie art films here, but I think it takes away from our crew, which bugs me. These are some of the most amazing set designers, costume designers, camera operators. I feel diminishing them with that kind of criticism takes away from the people who do award-winning films that also work on these projects. Now, to back her up on that, to, to point out to Mr. Scorsese, it's not cinema, right? Yeah. Well, just show him the scene where, where the Illuminati show up and go, hey, Marty, none of those people have ever met. That is actually using the techniques, the trickery, the art, the tools of cinema mm. to create the illusion that they are side by side. And you have to be really, really damn good to not be able to see the seams stitching mm -hmm. all that stuff together. Mm -hmm. So he may be talking about the formula of the storytelling, mm -hmm. but the artistry that makes all of that. I mean, I watched the behind the scenes thing with uh, Spider-Man where he's, it's just Tom Holland mm -hmm. in a suit that's mm -hmm. gray with some lines and ping pong balls on it. And he's running mm -hmm. left and right on a bridge and he does a somersault and he runs and then he jumps and that's about it. But when you watch, I mean, there's no sky in the background. There's no city. It's all blue screen. There's barely any cars. There's like a trampoline amongst the roads. So they're putting in cars. They're putting in debris. They're putting in sky. They're putting trees, buildings, like everything. The dirt. There's like nothing real mm -hmm. in that shot. Even Tom Holland has been completely replaced in a digital spider suit. And every once in a while, they might have taken his mask off. And mm -hmm. there's that one piece of actual true film that's being used is his head. And I think that you are using art at that point, the art of cinema. So uh, yeah, it's different, different it perspective, is. but it is. we'll respectively disagree with Mr. Scorsese. Okay. Uh, continuing on here. Uh, and again, this is kind of a top-down take on the folks at, at Marvel. And I, I bring that up because uh, Danny Elfman who wrote the wonderful score for Multiverse of Madness, recently shared a story about what happened the night 
that the Sam Raimi film opened in L.A. And Sip talks about how all, a whole bunch of us, Kevin, the producers, Sam, the writers, the editor, and I, we got in a bus and we drove around to a bunch of theaters to see how audiences were reacting to the movie on opening night. And it was wild. Just before the movie would start, and the, the lights would come up and they, the audience would go, what the hell? And Kevin would walk out on stage and say, hi, I'm Kevin Feige, president of, of Marvel Pictures, and welcome to the screening of Doctor Strange. And people are like, what in the world? He said, I'd like to bring some people out on stage. And then he'd bring us up and, and you know, he introduced us and we'd wave and then we'd go off stage and then they'd, they'd start the movie. And he said, I, I've never experienced anything like that before. I mean, Marvel makes this effort to really connect with its fans. Now, that's in L.A. And, you know, they used to do worldwide things like this. But again, we're still in the middle of the pandemic. But there are folks now finally getting back on the road and finally interacting with fans, which brings us to what you did last night. And and look, anybody who's listened to this podcast knows what a huge fan you are of Neil Gaiman. So when we get back from this break, you're going to talk about this was an evening's talk with Mr. Gaiman. Was that what went on? Yes, at Close Hall at uh, Butler University, Neil Gaiman spoke for a few hours, and we all sat enraptured. I was only a few rows away. I could throw a dead cat and hit the man. I, you know, have you ever, I'm sorry, do you, are you familiar with the term throw a dead cat? I don't know if it's a Michigander thing or... or no, 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 no. I'm familiar with it as a... a I don't know a, the deadness that's required of the cat, if it has to be skeletal for aerodynamics or what the weight ratio and the aerodynamics quality of a dead cat is, but apparently people throw them a lot to measure distance. And, and so I was close enough. I could throw a dead cat and hit Neil Gaiman with it. It was pretty close and awesome. Completely awesome. Okay. Well, you know, when we get back from this break... Aaron will tell us all about deceased flying felines and, and, and what Neil Gaiman had to say. A couple of quick Disney Plus related things before we get to Aaron sharing his evening with, with Neil Gaiman. Again, thanks to some well-meaning intern at the UK version of uh, Disney Plus, we now know that She-Hulk is going to debut on that streaming service August 17th. And first time in, I think, the history of the show, we've timed it right because the trailer dropped this evening. I guess it was shown at the upfronts. What do you make it? We now have a kind of expanded title for She-Hulk. It's She-Hulk Attorney at Law. Yeah, I mean, it's it feels Harvey Birdman Attorney at Law. Oh, well, if that's the case, I'm, I'm a happy guy. I Love mean, that that's show. that's my hope is is if that's what they're putting that there for to say, hey, remember that subliminally. Not that we <laughs> owned it or had anything to do with it, but to give you a vibe. That's good stuff. Okay, but well, what did we think of the trailer? I didn't see a lot of fourth wall breaking as of yet, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering is is that maybe you know they were looking at some tone problems that they're trying to sort out and, and make it you know more even. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering is did they lift some of that fourth wall breaking out, or have we just not seen a hint of that yet? I mean, it's only a, a glimpse of a trailer, so we're not going to see everything. Obviously, this is true. But this is true. Uh, they didn't hint at that being mm-hmm. a thing yet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, Deadpool was very straight up, like, and all of his stuff was fourth wall breaking, the trailers and, and everything. So I think if they were going to lean that heavily into it, they may have gone more of a Deadpool advertisement route mm-hmm. where that was more prominent. So the fact that it's not there makes me wonder, does it remain or is it just not that big of a deal for them? Um, 
Tim Roth, mm. as well as the Abomination. So that means that he can transform back and forth. Didn't know that before. Before in the Hulk, I think he became Abomination and stayed that way. Mm-hmm. And then we saw him in Shang-Chi we as did. the Abomination and mm-hmm. no transformation there. Mm-hmm. And you'd think going into the locker room, you know, you'd want to shower off. Mm-hmm. Transform back to your human self. Get in the shower. Go through the portal with Wong as he mm-hmm. complains about you not throwing your punch correctly. Um, but anyway, so it's good. I like Tim Roth. To, to see him back is always great. Who are the architects in the MCU? Because there is a building shown that I don't know if it can, you know, if it's structurally sound, but it was beautiful. Yeah. Incredibly yeah. beautiful. Probably very, very, very expensive. But it's, it's, I like the boldness of MCU architecture sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're getting kind of further away from our reality. Mm-hmm. But that's eh, okay. I like, I, I would rather have fantasy than be steadfast with, if it's not in our world right now, it can't exist in the MCU. It would just be kind of stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, th- her carrying off a guy to bed. Mm-hmm. That, that's a funny gag, right? Mm-hmm. We've, mm-hmm. we've always seen the inverse of that in the old timey movies where the, mm-hmm. the guy picks up the dame and carries mm-hmm. her off and romance ensues. Mm-hmm. Uh, to see her pick up a, a stud mm-hmm. and carry him off like that is a, a good turn on that. And then speaking of a good turn, mm-hmm. uh, you'll like her when she's angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a good turn on the, on the phrase that everyone's familiar of. You won't like me when I'm angry. So, um, I think they've started off on the right foot. It looks good. You know, Hulk doing the yes, yes, yes. And then she comes charging him. He's like, no, no, no. I mean, there's a lot of good jokes in there right off the bat. It, and it looks clean. It looks good. I'm, I'm really happy with it. Can't wait. Yeah. Well, and again, remember that this trailer got dropped at the upfront. Which, again, is is when Disney gets in front of advertisers every year. And all the networks do this this time of year. They hype their new shows, you know, what's coming down the line. Uh, what's kind of interesting is that Disney actually used this. And the reason they were doing the Disney Plus thing in front of advertisers is that later this year, we're going to get the version of Disney Plus that will feature four minutes worth of commercials for every hour's worth of entertainment. And th- that will be available for a lower subscription rate. And I think you were, you were noting that this has been kind of an interesting day for the subscription streaming services, right? Yeah, Netflix has said that they're going to be letting go of 150 of their staff members because they had 200,000 people leave their subscription service in the first quarter. So logically, the first thing you do is you see those people leave and you go, well, we got to fire people to make our money back. And then because you want to make more money because you're a company mm-hmm. and you want to lure back those people that left, right? Jim, you got to lure them back with a tempting offer. So they raise their rates to help lure them back. Yeah. Hey, you didn't like us at uh, $15, try us at 18. What was it? I don't, I don't remember what it was <laughs> and what it went to. I don't even look at my bills anymore. It's just mm-hmm. automatic deductions. Mm-hmm. And I just don't care as long as I've, I'm given my stream of, of content. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, so I really don't know what the prices are anymore. I just hear that they go up by $5, and I go, eh, fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, back to Mr. Feige at the upfronts. And drop the not particularly surprising bit of news. Loki Season 2 is going to begin production in the coming weeks. He brought out Samuel L. Jackson to talk up Secret Invasion, which we've talked about previously, shooting in the UK. Did sort of illuminate a little bit about 
the Marvel Studios experience since the launch of Disney Plus in, in 2019. And he talked about her. Our team has been able to extend and expand our storytelling in a whole new way. When we were first asked to start working on programming for Disney+, Plus, we knew we wanted to weave the storylines between the films and our series to be part of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or the MCU as a whole. And from the six series we've, we've watched so far, we've introduced fantastic new characters, but we've also been able to do a deeper dive into the lives of the backstories of some of the MCU's favorite superheroes. And Toward that end, we also got our first log line for Echo, which began shooting in Atlanta earlier this month. And it says the origin story of Echo revisits Maya Lopez, whose ruthless behavior in New York City catches up with her back in her hometown. She must face her past, reconnect with her Native American roots, and embrace the meaning of family and community if she ever hopes to move forward. So... I don't find this a particularly compelling outline for the, the Echo show, but I enjoyed the character in Hawkeye. Though if I I had my druthers, I'd still like to see Haley Steinfeld come back as Kate Bishop. I, I'm hoping we get to see that sometime soon. Okay, one week from today, Aaron, May 27th, Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind will open in the World Discovery section of Epcot. Uh, and Imagineers have been talking about how for all of the film footage featured in this family through a ride storytelling coaster, and in the pre-show, they tried to replicate the swagger that James Gunn brought to the Guardians movies. Did they actually use the word swagger? They did. They, awesome. They, All right. Okay. But here's the thing. There's a, Supposedly, if you, you factor in the stuff in the queue and the stuff on the ride, there's 75 minutes of footage. Folks who've been in for the cast member previews, the annual pass previews, uh, DVC previews, and the like, there have been some complaints that the footage for Cosmic Rewind really doesn't have the swagger or the sense of fun that, say, Mission Breakout, the redo of Disney California Adventures Twilight Zone Tower of Terror does. And supposedly that's because James Gunn didn't actually shoot the footage. For Cosmic Rewind, the plan was originally that James would, in fact, direct the footage for Cosmic Rewind while Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and that holiday special was being shot. But then the pandemic happened, and evidently Imagineering panicked because there was—think uh, about it. Think about Oh, they wanted everything. We want our, our work parts now so we can put our stuff together and et cetera. And yeah, okay. All right, so what supposedly happened was rather than waiting and risking another variant and perhaps you know the the you know the footage not being able to sh be shot because Guardians yeah, got I'll give I'll give the intern Jeff 100 bucks if he goes grabs the camera. Just it's, go point it at Star-Lord. Point it at Star-Lord. Here's 100 bucks, Jeff. Go do it. Do it. <laughs> in, in this case the the intern Jeff was Taika Watiti. Oh, well, no, come on. Taika's great. You can't well, say no, that Taika no, shot I something not, and ain't got no swagger. How dare I'm you? How very dare you, sir? That, you know, that, that I'm not saying Taika Waititi is, is, is a bad filmmaker. I, I have enjoyed everything this man has put in front of the camera. But the thing is, Taika isn't necessarily 
the theme park obsessive that James Gunn is. Right, right. In this case, Taika, who's just trying to make a good movie mm. out of Thor, Love and Thunder, and then, you know, the fe- people at Disney and the people at Marvel Studios, oh, by the way, could you uh, possibly come in and shoot the footage for the, the, the ride that's being built in Florida? And it's like, well, all right, how much is, well, we need 75 minutes worth of footage. And it's like, oh, <laughs> I can get a sense that maybe Taika might not have put his full effort into the the side hustle that Disney dropped in his lap. But but at the same time, Taika Waititi is, is a team player, and it's like James can't come to Australia because of what's going on with, with the pandemic. So mm-hmm. and now, mind you, I'm trying to get the story confirmed, but I've got it from a really, really good source at Disney. But I will be intrigued to see, you know, because again, Disney kept using things like, you know, James Gunn swagger, but didn't actually say James Gunn directed this. So um, let's hope somebody else comes forward and explains what went on here. But anyway, moving forward here, let's talk about your evening in the presence of Neil Gaiman, which I am crazy envious of. How did you find out about this? Oh, we've had tickets since last year. Uh, okay. He's he's been touring the country, mm-hmm. doing talks and readings and such. And part of it, uh, honestly, is is uh, written word copyright is different mm-hmm. than prose copyright. So mm-hmm. by his going on the road and performing it, he gets a different type of ownership over his own material that is, I think, more extensive than just general print copyright laws. Hmm. I did. Yeah. Know, so, I mean, yeah, he was tweeting about, you know, I mean, he, he likes to help authors, you know, get a fair shake. Mm-hmm. And s- some of that is copyright law. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in order for him to have more authorship and ownership uh, or mm-hmm. ownership over his, his content, that's mm-hmm. part of that is reading it as prose. And then it falls under a different set of law. So uh, anyway. I will start off by saying the lights went down. A voice came up and said, ladies and gentlemen, Neil Gaiman. And I cried. I cri- I wept. I was like, ah, he's there. Where's my dead cat? I must measure this unit of distance. Where's a Zendaya when I, I need one? Zendaya, I, where are you? I, I was I need waiting to measure for her to enter the Neil conversation. But, but yes, okay, please. <laughs> Continue on with the dead All cats right. and Zendaya. He was so, you know what uh, a nice man this is, as he walked out, he was at a podium and he looked down at the front row and he goes, can you see me? Hmm. And uh, he goes, I can't see you. And by logic stating, if I can't see you, you can't see me. Can we move this podium back? And and then they had to come out and, and move the podium so the people in the front row could actually see him. Hmm. And uh, everyone was just like, God, what a kind human you are. And that's just the way he is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go through the list of the things that he read by title. I'm not going to qu- quote any of it. Mm-hmm. But if you're a fan and you know the work, you'll go, aha, I know mm-hmm. these titles. And you can check them off your list. If you have never heard of these titles, please go find them and read them. Uh, he's got a book called The Neil Gaiman Reader. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what he's reading. It's a collection of his short stories and snippets from his novels. Mm-hmm. And so most of what he read was from that. Some stuff is brand new and never published. Mm-hmm. And other stuff is stuff he has not read in over a few decades and has been retired. Oh. So it was all just wonderful. And then he answered some questions. So what I'm going to do is I'll give you the titles of, of what was read. Mm-hmm. And then uh, his advice for people, life, and writers, mm-hmm. which was just wonderful. So here we go. Uh, he started off uh, Chivalry, 
is a short story. A lovely uh, little old lady goes to the shop, buys a uh, a romance novel, a used romance novel for like five pence, and the Holy Grail. <laughs> That's it. She takes it home mm-hmm. and uh, gets a visitor from a knight who's on a quest mm-hmm. for a thing. And uh, she just doesn't want to give up the Holy Grail because it looks quite nice on the mental. It's a lovely, lovely story about two people who want one thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, beyond that, October, it, it, Neil did a series of stories, one for every month. This one was named October because it was the month it was written in. Mm-hmm. It is the companion piece to chivalry, except this one is about a lamp mm-hmm. and someone who dwells inside of it. Ooh. He's so good with, I mean, it's just the genie and the lamp story. Mm-hmm. But it's got a weird twist where mm-hmm. the person who gets who rubs the lamp is entirely satisfied with their life and they have no wishes. And it frustrates the genie because it's like, what do I do? I'm only here to grant you a wish. And they're like, well, you can you know move some boxes if you want. He's like, is it a wish? It's like, no, it's just a thing you could do. <laughs> if you're looking for a thing to do, you could do that. But it's okay. not a wish. Um, Professor Bananas, and you can never have too many cherries. That was a thing that's not been published. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you'll find it, but it was read for a four-year-old in the audience. It was made for a very small child. It was full of fancy and whimsy and impossible, just impossible. But it, I could see it setting the imagination of a child free forever. It was just boundless so you'll have to find a way to to discover that somehow mm-hmm. um locks is just goldilocks the goldilocks story in the three bears but it's neil telling it to his four-year-old daughter who likes to interrupt with changes to the story that aren't quite right but she's very persistent so he says okay it's a big house not a small house and the porridge is very very hot indeed daddy yes very very hot indeed all right, moving on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just so cute. The you know you know the story, so there's a sense of comfort there, mm-hmm. in familiarity. It's the twists that he he gives that comfort that add a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote a poem. Uh, what is it to be warm? It's a poem for refugees. They wrote with the help of uh, over twelve hundred replies on Twitter. And it's, wow. it's just, he, he sees that there was like the highest number of refugees in the world at that moment that he wrote it. And now, obviously, with Ukraine going on, there are many, many more mm-hmm. refugees. So he feels very strongly about that. And he's got a poem about warmth. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just heartbreaking and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Moving on. <laughs> There's a story. I, don't, I, I wish I knew the name of it. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll give you the, the very quickest of it. it. It's about the day that the UFOs invaded, Jim. Mm-hmm. But you don't remember it. Because it was also mm-hmm. uh, the day of the zombie outbreak. <laughs> but, but you don't remember that. Mm-hmm. Because it was also Ragnarok that day. However, mm-hmm. you had no idea it was Ragnarok. And it continues through several layers. Mm-hmm. And you never knew any of this because you were sitting in your room staring at your phone. Oh. <laughs> um, my wife had never heard Neil Gaiman read. Mm-hmm. When he read, she 
like touched my arm and she closed her eyes. Oh. He has the most soothing cadence and nobody can read a Neil Gaiman story like Neil Gaiman reads a Neil Gaiman story. Mm -hmm. He's given a master class on writing, but she, he should also give one on just speaking. And he's just so very good at, at his narration. And so she said, I would never wanted to listen to an audiobook, but I want all of his read by him. And that that's I think the highest compliment a that person is, can give. That is so, holy cow. So moving on, mm -hmm. he gave a lot of advice. And I think that this is applicable for a lot of people, not just writers. So mm -hmm. but there are some, and I think they're they're very true. So I'll, mm -hmm. I'll share them with people. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> someone is frustrated. I'm waiting for a reply on my, my thing I just wrote. What do I do while I wait for this reply? And Neil's response is, if you are currently finishing project C while you're waiting on project A, it doesn't hurt so bad, but these things take a, a long time and you just have to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. Some will get picked up, some won't. You just keep moving forward and you will wait and some things will happen. And, and so, yeah, just keep working. That's how you get through it while you mm -hmm. wait. Work. Then he said, speaking of, of working, you know, how, how do you write? And Jim, you and I have written a word or two in our career. So I think this will, will be a, a fun little nugget. Uh, when you're right, you're allowed to do nothing. But... You can't do anything else. You can't watch TV. You can't go on Twitter. You can't read the internet. You can't clean. You can stare out a window mm -hmm. because that is as close to nothing as you can do. However, within about half an hour, the task of writing becomes a welcome relief from the boredom of doing nothing. And you will set about doing it. That's actually excellent advice. Yes. Um, yeah, yes. No. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's it, what's it take to make Neil uh, Gaiman happy? Uh, mm -hmm. To be happy, he needs a fountain pen, a pad of paper, a cup of tea, and to know that his children are safe and well. Oh. Exactly. The whole crowd. Just oh, yeah. such a loving man. Yeah. Uh, this is the fun one for us because we talk about the MCU so much and its interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. uh, does Neil have a grand plan? No. <laughs> it was his simple response initially. And then he said he once made a list. He wanted to make a record. He wanted to write a book. He wanted to write a musical. See, uh, some things he has done, others he still wanted to do. But he was never bitten by a radioactive plan. <laughs> How to get kids to read. Do not tell them it's good for them. Never tell them the advantages of what it will do them for them later in life. No. Find them something with the most salacious cover and say, do not read this. <laughs> And they'll fall in love with reading as a result. Keep things away from them. Say, no, 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 you don't want that. Over my dead body, will you read something as salacious as this? And then hand it to him. Now go to your room. I don't want to see you for another six hours. Um, for Coraline, I don't know if you know this or not. Coraline started off as a typo. It was supposed to be Caroline. Oh, okay. But it, it, he had a typo, and it stayed as Coraline. And uh, he was like, eh, it's it's mm -hmm. a nice name. It's different. So uh, he once gave the advice of uh, 
embrace your typos. They're not that bad. It's mm-hmm. just a typo. And then he was telling uh, what he would listen to his four-year-old daughter make up stories about her coming home from school and mommy was in the kitchen, but when mommy turned around, it was a pretend mommy and she threw me in the cellar. And Neil notes that they were in a one-floor house, had no cellar, so he didn't know where the child ever came up with the idea of what a cellar was, but okay. And uh, she would tell stories about babies that would fly around and, and he would just kind of take note of all these stories. And so when he wanted to get her to read, he went to the library and said, say, what do you have in the way of horror for four-year-olds? And they gave him quite the weird look. And he just said, oh, there is none. And so he decided he had to write it. And so he started jotting out the first three or four chapters of Coraline as dictated to him by his daughter. And he sent it to his editor and he said, hey, what do you think of this? And they read it and they said, we love it. What happens? And he said, write me a contract and we'll both find out. Now, here's the thing that the little ender for that story was, even though he did get the contract, he was Mm -hmm. not allotted any more time in his very busy schedule. Mm -hmm. And so he did not write Coraline for a very long time. And his youngest daughter had grown much older, and he had a second daughter who was now in the four-year-old slot. And the Mm -hmm. oldest daughter didn't want Neil to read to her anymore, which broke his heart. So he said, well, I'm going to start doing audiobooks Mm -hmm. and make you listen to me. And uh, and I'm going to do this Coraline thing, which you wrote, make you listen to that. Uh. Mm -hmm. And so he he started typing out 50 to 100 words a day. And finally, Coraline came to completion after many years of... uh, So things, you know, are not instantaneous. You don't just sit down and write a masterpiece. No, no, you do not. But again, I, I love this sort of good, practical advice from somebody who actually has made quite the career from writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, one. Speaking of uh, massive successes, mm-hmm. he wanted to inform writers of how stupid the publishing world is. Mm-hmm. He didn't use the word stupid. I'm using the word stupid, but okay. I think it's apt for what when I when I tell you the story. Mm-hmm. I think you'll you'll agree. He says ninety percent of publishers' income is generated by best sellers, which is much less than ten percent of their authors. However. of the work being done in publishing is in non-best-selling authors. One recommendation he had heard was that publishers should spend more time just putting out (laughs) bestsellers. Just, that's all you got to do, Jim. Just put out bestsellers. That's it. Just, (sighs) just bestsellers. Just focus on that. That's all you got to do. Simple, easy peasy. Um, there was no photography allowed. Mm-hmm. However, once he said, thank you, good night, all bets mm-hmm. were off. And mm-hmm. we all took our photos of Neil on the stage at that moment. And uh, it was like, yeah, security, come escort me out so I can beat traffic. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I got home and I, I tweeted at mm-hmm. Neil himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, this is the most fabulous night of mm-hmm. you know words and children's stories and gods mm-hmm. and myths and magic, and it was the best night of my life, and thank you. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually replied to me, actually oh. retweeted me and replied to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to click over here to my Twitter. Actually, I had a really hot night. I'm going to tell you another thing that happened as well, but first, mm-hmm. the, the, big, the big thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neil retweeted me. I was so happy. My heart was a flutter, like mm-hmm. like the hand of God touched me on the forehead and said, "You have been chosen, child." Uh, Neil said, "Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing audience, Magic Indianapolis." Now, Jim, I want you to pause right there for a moment and think about this. 
he called me out by name when he said Indianapolis. <laughs> Magic, Indi not just, hey, my friend. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know I was the spokesperson for all of Indianapolis. <laughs> Apparently, Neil has chosen me as that role. It's not my thing necessarily, but uh, well, yeah. You will <laughs> proudly accept this burden, one would hope. So. No, he was he was the most gracious, wonderful, blessed thing. Uh, we all w were moved in in so many ways. We laughed, we cried, we clapped, we cheered, and it was it was wonderful. If he's coming to a town near you, please go check it out. Speaking and, of uh, which, yeah. speaking right. of which, the tour continues. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, today, uh, with the day the show drops, May twentieth. Uh, he will be in Dallas at the Windspear Opera House, the AT&T Performing Center. And then on the 22nd of May, he will be in Houston, Texas at Jones Hall. And then on May 23rd, he will be in Los Angeles and in the theater at the Ace Hotel. And then finally, this seems kind of cruel to end your, your tour of America, but he's in Pittsburgh uh, at the Carnegie Music Hall. And, and no disrespect to the, the, the lovely people of Pittsburgh. It's actually a beautiful city, mm. but that's on May 26th. And also, uh, before you, you get to your final story, I do sure. want to point out mm. the thing that he was reading from last night, the Neil Gaiman Reader Selected mm -hmm. Fiction, was published back on uh, October 2020. So this is relatively new, mm. but it's a it's a hardcover with 52 different pieces of selected fiction. So yeah, it's uh, all wonderful. All wonderful. Going to have to chase it down. But anyway, you had one more story to share. You know, back in the 90s, I was a massive fan of The Kids in the Hall, the Canadian comedy Yes, yes. I'm it crushing my, your head. I'm crushing yes, your head. Absolutely. Okay. It was my generation's version of Monty Python, if uh -huh. I may be so bold to make yep. that claim. Mm -hmm. But I think most people will go, yeah, I see that. Mm -hmm. uh, they've come back to Amazon. I've heard this. And in fact, Mark Evanier was just talking about how it was actually startling given how good the early Kids in the Hall stuff was and to have them step back into the space and be as good, if not better. Yeah, well, okay, so uh, Dave Foley did a bit mm -hmm. about a radio DJ, mm -hmm. which I think he summed up a 10-year portion of my career in a 30-second bit. <laughs> Oh. And I, uh, I think I now have a hernia from laughing, and I told him I was going to be sending him my doctor bills. So he, he liked a couple of my tweets. And oh. so uh, to, to have a comedy legend that I idolized like Dave Foley. And this all happened last night. It, uh, I got two likes from Dave Foley and a retweet and a comment from Neil Gaiman. And I, I was just walking on cloud nine of like, it was a wonderful day on Twitter. Social media every so often can be an amazing thing. I, I'm, I'm very happy for you. And again, it's a long time... Kids in the Hall fan, I can't, I can't wait to, to get started on this stuff over at Amazon. I, how many episodes have, have they got? There were eight, and uh, they're they're all just just wonderful. There's like I almost thought the Chicken Lady was going to be back, and mm -hmm. there's no Chicken Lady, and that's fine because okay. what they did mm -hmm. was great. And there are some, you know, like when they dress up as a as a female and they use their oh Doris, no no no, you know, it's yeah. like the same voice. Uh huh. Uh, and oh, they do it. The Kathy, oh <laughs> Kathy, oh no, yeah, the and the last facts. Oh no, <sighs> we're gonna send out the last facts, but. The the thing that triggers it is so funny is uh, mm -hmm. the, the the very opening is someone buys a VHS copy of the Kids mm -hmm. in the Hall brain candy. 
mm-hmm. at a garage sale and they pay a, a dollar for it. And this mm-hmm. means that the Kids in the Hall brain candy film is finally broken even <laughs> and it has broken a curse with the devil. And now they can get renewed and they're like, oh, so Don, who are we doing? Oh, not the devil this time. No, no, we could, the devil is busy. Who are we doing it with? Oh, Amazon. Oh, Amazon. The devil was busy. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> So it's 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 wonderful. Go check it out on Amazon uh, Prime. Okay. The kids in the hall are back. That's it, and and life is good. Okay, yeah. well, uh, thank you so much for sharing your evening with, with Neil Gaiman, and also sharing that news. Holy cow! Yeah. Speaking of your fun time last night on social media, where can folks find you on social media, Aaron? Oh, just jump on the Twitters and hit me up at, at Azaprod, A-Z-A-P-R-O-D. Mm. Where are you at nowadays, Jim? You can find us on Twitter and Instagram is Jim Hill Media, and over on Facebook is Jim Hill Media News. In addition to the show you're listening to this evening, uh, we have a couple of other podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. We, of course, have Disney Dish, which I do with Len Testa, Fine Tuning, which I do with Drew Taylor, and we, of course, have the recently revived Looking at Lucasfilm, which I'm doing with Brian Gaughan. But thanks again, Aaron. What a treat to hear about your your evening uh, at the uh, where was it again? Uh, the Klaus Hall in uh, Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana. It's a lovely theater. Very very nice little theater. We've been there actually. We've we've seen uh, George Takei there as well. Oh. And uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, just next door to there at the the uh, basketball arena, whatever it was called. Very cool. All right. Well, again, thanks for listening, folks. And Aaron and I will be back soon.